Welcome to the Business in Vancouver podcast. I'm Haley Wooden, and this podcast is brought to you by Manning Elliott Accountants and Business Advisors. Joining me today is my co-host, BIV reporter Patrick Blennerhassett. Good to have you back on the show. Thanks for having me, Haley. And we're also joined today by a special guest. Lindsay Meredith is a professor of marketing at Simon Fraser University. His research focuses on a variety of things, including B2B and strategic marketing. Now, he'll be a very familiar name to our listeners and readers as he's a very often quoted go-to resource for a variety of stories we're working on in the BIV newsroom. But Lindsay, this is the first time we've had you on our podcast and radio show. So really appreciate you taking the time to join us. Pleasure here, Haley. So Patrick, I'll hand this over to you. We're going to talk about a variety of marketing and behavioral economics issues. Mm. Why don't you get us going? Yeah, Lindsay, let's start sort of basically at the basis of your research. And you, we were just talking about this off air. I always wish that we could tape the podcast before it actually started. We need like a pre-show. Pre-podcast show. Yeah, yeah. Um, But you work in the cross-section of marketing and economics. And is there a way that you can kind of break that down for listeners as as a good way to understand that to start off? Uh, Yeah, fundamentally, um, if you look at the the background of the two two disciplines, economics preceded marketing. Economics was all about looking at, quote, the rational man overall. Mm -hmm. Uh, Marketing was very much uh, a wider-based thing. As I like to say to people, we equal opportunity thieves. We stole from the economist, from the psychologist, from the sociologist. So marketing involves a lot more stuff along the emotional side as well as the cognitive side. Well, I know that economics is based on what you said, the rational man. But what we're finding out with behavioral economics and marketing is that people are quite irrational, but they still have patterns that they developed. Is there sort of some interesting findings that you found over the year about the irrational consumer, the irrational sort of uh, marketing strategies or anything like that? Well, certainly if you use the the measuring tool, economic rationality, uh, we break rational behavior all the time. You can, economics would say, for example, you got two brands, brand A and brand B. They're substitutes for each other. So brand A should substitute for brand B, brand B should substitute for brand A. No, marketers would say, you know what? Brand B might be a better substitute for brand A than brand A is for brand B. Hey, that's how you get market share shift. So I can jack the price, for example, of one brand and I don't lose any sales. But if I did that for the substitute brand and I jack the price there, my sales plummet. Hmm. Gee, I wonder how that happens. So certainly you can get rules that get broken with regard to rational behavior. Um, and it shows up all over the place, Patrick. And we, you've worked with a lot of businesses and companies and corporations over the years, and obviously probably a huge portion of our, our listeners are, you know, potentially business owners. Is there one thing today that you think, I, I hate to be really like a generalist, say that businesses are doing wrong? Is there something that they're doing right? Anything specifically in Vancouver or anywhere that you're seeing that businesses are maybe missing the mark or companies are missing the mark on? That gets to be a tough one. Um, in in a lot of cases, uh, I guess, and I certainly have consulted to a whack of them all across the board, from the banks to the major uh, mining companies to the furniture companies, you pizza joints, you name it. Yeah. Um, I guess one of the big things I, I learned over time is that I find a lot of corporations get into uh, a, a mindset with regard to what their product is, what their brand is, how people are going to react to it. And what I really want to keep saying is, look, um, keep in mind that people can be very, very um, 
unpredictable, very, very uh, flexible in how they're going to react. So what's the issue for a corporation? Make sure you're very flexible and you're always looking downstream to see how things might potentially turn out. It's not just always if I jack my price 5%, what's going to happen? Yeah. That gets a lot. That's pretty simplistic. Uh, it's like a chess game, Patrick. Yeah, You've got to say, if I jack my price 5%, What's going to happen to my sales? But hold it. What will the competitor down the street do? And has he got a better brand than I got? Because if he has, I jack my price 5%. Boy, he's going to pick my bones. It's called cannibalization. His brand will eat my brand. So it's a chess game. You've got to think a little farther down the street. Mm-hmm. How good at business are businesses at seeing with foresight what's going to happen and not maybe being blinded by the fact that we have the best brand in the world. We can jack the price up. Nothing's going to happen. Well, yeah, yeah, that's a very good point, Haley. One of the issues I've always dealt with corporations, and I make them do this, drives them nuts, by the way, um, <laughs> is I get the sales staff to sit down and I say, okay, now you tell me every reason in the world why your brand's no damn good. Hmm. What's wrong with it? Why is it inferior to the guy down the street? Well, nobody wants to do that in a corporation. That That is... That's sacrilege, for God's sake, to start admitting that your, your product or your brand is inferior to somebody else's. But if unless you do that, how are you going to p- plug the holes? Because in marketing, one of the first things you want to teach is you've got to be able to say, look, if I don't plug these holes and make my product better or my service better or lower my price a little bit or improve my advertising, trust me, the guy down the street is going to find the hole and then he's going to drive a wedge in there and then he's really going to hurt me. So I either plug the hole or he finds the hole and then does serious damage to me. <laughs> yeah, better to plan and prepare for those instances as opposed to being caught blindsided, right? Absolutely. And again, when you get into the marketing side of it, it is a much wider, more diverse area than if you simply did a tight economic or accounting or a financial analysis of the situation. Mm-hmm. So the example I'm using right now, I've been doing a whack of interviews on this one, our poor old friends at Loblaws. So as you know, they got busted for a little price fixing on bread. Just they, a little. They Just tried. They tried over to a decade and a half. Got her. <laughs> they tried to fix a bad situation by saying we we're going to give twenty five dollar discount cards. I got one of those actually. Excellent. I, I filled out the form online and got it. Yeah. Well, where it went yeah. a little haywire is if your wife actually filled out her form, they turned around and said, "No, we want your driver's license." Mm. Okay. So on the one hand, you have an economic solution. We were bad dogs. We're going to make. In marketing, you call it repair, looking after your brand equity, and that's your brand reputation, and that's crucial for a corporation. Um, they use an economic solution. We'll try and make reparations to our damaged customers out there. And then the unanticipated side, the marketing side, reared its ugly head again. And that was suddenly when we say to Patrick's wife, well, yeah, we gave Patrick the $25 card, but for you, my friend, we want to see your your ID. We want your driver's license with your signature on your driver's license number, at which point she goes ballistic, at which point the social network systems light up, which has now become a crucial issue as well. And I think the economists are even figuring this out. Marketers are well aware of it, by the way. And the social network systems are just killing Loblaws on this story. So, mm-hmm. of course, the long interviews now are all about what do you do? Yeah. I want to ask you about this because Loblaws has been in the news now for many months over this issue. It's not playing in their favor. No. Stock has taken a bit of a hit in some cases, too. Yeah. But we forget sometimes. Like, are consumers actually going to change their behavior and say, you know what? I am not shopping at Loblaws anymore. Well, that's where you get into the, 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 the issue of, of brand equity now. So when you have, when you're dealing with that mess on your hands, uh, look, Loblaws walk down the street. They're in the middle of this thing. Um, can they now basically 
cut off. It depends on how much damage is out there. So from an accounting mm. side, you're saying, well, hold it. We had guys defrauding us. That's why we're asking for driver's licenses. The marketer says that's an economic solution. We don't like that one. The way you assess that one is you say, look, how, how bad is the defrauding activity out there, number one? Number two, how bad do we expect it to get? And number three, if it isn't that big and we don't think it's going to get that bad, put it away. Don't keep dragging <laughs> this nonsense out. You're destroying everything you set out to do by offering the $25 di uh, um, discount card or bread card because now the social network system is lit up and now you're getting slaughtered a second time on this thing. Not to mention they did it after they themselves defrauded customers for Which is exactly <laughs> bingo, Haley. Guess what all the social networks are saying? Let me get this right. You guys sucker punched us and defrauded us and now you're upset that we're defrauding you? So you can see what happens in marketing. You would take a different position on that because the emotional content is now driving the response in the marketplace. It seems like a good segue into social media and how it's integrated itself into marketing. Um, I remember first starting out when social media was first starting to be adopted by companies and corporations, and they originally thought it was going to be a silver bullet. It would yep. be a way to sort of interact with customers and for the government to interact with people. Yeah. And then they woke up one day and said, everybody's just complaining to us and this isn't working at all. This is, <laughs> and we have to pay somebody full time to, to monitor this thing all, yeah. all day. Um, with you and social media and marketing and, and economics, is there always something, is there something that you go back to consistently when you think about its integration into the economics world? Is there something that kind of always puzzles you or anything that kind of comes off the top of your head when you think about it? Well, where my research started in this some years ago, and the marketing journalists apparently liked it because they jumped on it, um, was the issue of, I call it the town hall agenda. So the history of it was corporations and government had a one-way voice. They talked down to consumers. Consumers absorbed the information. Social network created a town hall agenda where the consumers could start to yell back. Mm. Now, the corporations couldn't get their head around that one. So they didn't want to deal with it until they realized suddenly the social network system was very, very dangerous. It allowed boycotts to organize overnight. It allowed uh, consumers to slam their products like you wouldn't believe. Now, here's the issue. Is there misinformation on social network? Of course there is. All kinds of it. Um, very misleading stuff. Um, is some of it outright lies? Absolutely. But in, I always said to my students, we have a basic, a basic uh, motto here, and that is that Reality doesn't matter a damn. Perception is everything. Yeah. So get away from that rational man issue. It's the perception. It's the emotive side. How do people actually see you and feel about you? And that's where the social network system became very, very dangerous. It can mobilize vast amounts of people and make them very well. By the way, some of the first research is now coming in on broad-based industry samples, and it is showing stock value gets hammered as a function a very, very heavy negative output from social network systems. So we now have some wow. statistical stuff to hang our hats on. And the sample of the study I was looking at in this one, very large cross-industry sample, not the kind of stuff you can dismiss very easily as anecdotal. So what you're saying, I think this would probably scare a lot of CEOs and, and sort of boards is that a really bad uh, PR splash that spills out onto Twitter or is influenced by Twitter, sort of pushed by Twitter or anything yeah. or Instagram or, or Facebook can essentially, you know, push the stock of a company and hurt the stock of a company 
And it's basically being fueled by social media. It's not being aided. It's being sort of ignited, right? So you're saying that these these social media sites now are basically market influencers like, you know, anything else, right? Very much. And yeah. I argued in, in some subsequent research that, that basically we have a symbiosis running here. And that is that social media feed mass media and vice versa. So it works like this. And believe me, this is based on, I've done over 2,000 media interviews now. So I got a little background in this. A few, yeah. <laughs> um, and one of the things I've noticed is this happened, especially in the last two decades Last decade, really a lot. Um, we'll see a spike in social media on some some aspect of a corporation, bad dog. Yeah. As soon as that spikes, I get ready for phone calls from mass media. What's going on, Lindsay? We just checked into this. We saw all this social network stuff exploding. We need to do a story. We need, we need some interviews. Mm -hmm. Then it goes the other way. People see the mass media. Suddenly... That gives credibility back to the social network system. People then zoom into the social network system to find out more about what's going on. So it goes around in a circle. Then you see a huge increase in hits again, and away it takes off a second time with mass media. Classic example, I just got through doing a whack of interviews on our poor old friends over just up the street, Mountain Equipment Co-op. Mm. And I mm -hmm. just wrote a, actually wrote the chairlift with the the, the, uh, the chair of the board there. And uh, the comments were very oh, interesting. Must have been an interesting it was indeed. Ride, yeah. Their comment was, boy, did we have a tough one? I said, yeah, well, I did. I had a tough one too. I did about 13 or 14 interviews and nothing flat on that thing. And basically, there's the example where you had the association with our friend Savage, who owned Vista, Savage, big uh, uh, AR 15 gun maker. Mm -hmm. And here, what happened in this case is very interesting. Social media co coalesced and got 4,000 signatures very quickly on MEC saying dump Vista and all the yeah. Vista-related brands. When I did the first interview, I said 4,000, you know, okay, that's a dent. But remember, uh, MEC have about 5 million customers, almost the same as the NRA. So <laughs> um, what happened after that was really interesting. I said, well, you know, Okay, I'm, you got my attention. I'm a little worried. I'll get a lot more worried because of social network. Let's see how fast this goes. If this goes to 40,000 in the next three to four days, mm -hmm. it's hand-wringing time. Well, it went to 50,000 in the next three or four days. And MEC was between a rock and a hard spot. Make this one really easy, folks. Dump Vista or your customers dump you. Now, what would you do if you were a corporation? So here you have this non-rational stuff completely devoid of product purchasing and it's all focused about this whole emotive thing on we're sick and tired of the damned NRA yeah. and how they won't back off on guns that destroy a lot of people. Interesting. We're going to take a very short break, and then we're going to come back and continue that conversation because that's a big one and a great local example. We're chatting today with Lindsay Meredith. He's a professor of marketing at Simon Fraser University. We'll be back right after this. This podcast is brought to you by Manning Elliott Accountants and Business Advisors. Manning Elliott has been providing expert accounting, assurance, business advisory, tax, and valuation services to businesses in the Lower Mainland and Fraser Valley since 1952. If you're serious about taking your business and brand to the next level, and if you want an accounting firm that'll be there to help you every step of the way, give Manning Elliott Accountants and Business Advisors a call at 604-714-3600. That's 604-714-3600, or you can check them out online at manningelliot.ca. We're in conversation today with Lindsay Meredith, professor of marketing at SFU. We just left off talking about MEC and the 
political, politicized decision they had to make. It seems like on one hand, when brands get political without being asked to, it does not play in their favor. But if you're MEC, you find yourself in this debate and you have to make a decision. What's the line there? What do brands do? Well, in the particular case, the MEC case, it was an issue of, you know, you can can you make an error by responding to every little blip in the, especially the social media structure? Absolutely. Um, so is there a balancing act here? Yes. With balancing act, it's all about A, don't overreact, but B, keep those marketing antenna up on high alert. Wait and see, is that social media system out there going to develop a bit of a groundswell? Is it going to develop some critical mass, I call it? Because if it's going to catch critical mass, you're going to probably catch a critical problem here. And I mean, sooner, not later. I was wondering about, you talked about, obviously, social media kind of um, galvanizing. Well, not, that's probably a bad word. But social media has given consumers sort of a cohesive voice. But yeah. if we're going to apply behavioral economics to that, yeah. those voices are all irrational. So how do, like, if, if I'm a consumer and I want to sort of affect change on a corporate level, they always talk about that popular adage of every dollar you spend is a vote. Um, but if I'm working in a, in a group where everybody's irrational and we have that groupthink mentality, mm -hmm. um, you know, we've seen hundreds of examples of this where social media just rails off on something that's completely unnecessary, right? Yeah. And, and after a while, everybody goes, well, why was that even an issue, right? It's like, oh, it was big on Twitter for a bit. So yeah. um, you talked about sometimes companies just ignoring social media as possibly a good way to just, okay, this this is just the flavor of the day. Is there is there sort of tactics that companies and corporations could take um, to mitigate, you know, social media disasters in some respects? Yeah, a lot of them. Uh, this comes back to the whole issue of that, what we call social equity, um, or what I certainly call social equity. And that is a big trend you've seen corporations adopt, especially in the last 10 years. And it's a marked change. Remember, Milton Friedman and that neoclassical gang out of Chicago came up with a really profoundly stupid comment. And that was, the only obligation a corporation has is to its shareholders, quote, unquote. You know what? That's pretty dangerous thinking. Didn't work out for a lot of companies. Didn't yeah. work out for a lot of companies. Uh, today, especially because of the social media, the corporate structure has to catch a, uh, cast a much wider net than that. Mm -hmm. It has to be able to work on, you know what? We have a whole bunch of emotional reaction out there maybe, but you know what? That could galvanize into very, very concrete economic behavior if they stop buying our product. <laughs> um that kind of thing can happen. What a corporation is doing, a lot of them are taking a very active role in social media. Mm -hmm. They're taking a very active role in creating strong brand equity. And that brand reputation is crucial. It works like this. If I screw up a little bit, but I've got a strong brand equity position mm -hmm. among the consumer groups out there, then even if I've screwed up a little bit, you know what? There will be forgiveness the mass media will forgive, the social media will forgive, and it's easy for me to make arguments on social media that, you know what, I'm a pretty straight player. If I've got a bad rec track record of being a bit of a corporate jerk out there and always catching my sleeve, then the next view is, yep, caught him doing it yet one more time. Typical for those guys. Yeah. That means everybody jumps on it and you get backlash again very quickly. That's why you're seeing corporations take a very much more social role today than they did 10 years ago. And it's all about building that social equity, which gives brand stability and brand longevity and allows you to take hits from social media, from startup groups, mm -hmm. from competitors. And you're going to see a lot more of that because corporations have figured this out. 
How do you build, you talk, uh, like I've interviewed multiple times and you always seem to name drop brand equity and that seems like another silver bullet thing, but how do you, how do you get that? Is that, how do you yeah. cultivate that? That seems like such a, a obtuse term, like it's yeah, tough I to agree. wrap your head I around, agree. right? The short answer is hard, bloody work. True. Yeah. Um, to build that brand reputation takes a long time. And the real problem is you can just get caught out badly once and boy, you can destroy a lot of it in a hurry. So it's a tough thing. It's kind of like kind of putting deposits into the bank. It takes a long time to build up the bank account, but create a serious enough an error and you can wipe out the bank account too. Uh, so yeah, I agree. I mean, you got to watch out for the buzzwords out there, but that, 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 that brand reputation you have, that, that good image you have out there in the public, um, it takes a long time to build it, and corporations understand that. And yeah, we have examples of uh, way back in the old days, Maytag, perfect brand name. Yeah, whole bunch of um, well, less than long term corporate types got a hold of it, decided to cheap out on a lot of the brand components, and basically destroyed that brand equity, that brand reputation in oh matter of years. Is there, do you have a good Vancouver example? Is there a Vancouver company or corporation that you admire about how they handle their marketing or their economic strategies or even their social media? Um, oh, Not gee, to that, put you on the spot there no, that's and get a you tough the name one. drop. I mean, but. That's an interesting one because I'm, I'm, I'm basically thinking about um, a lot of them um, actually do a pretty good job. Mm. Um, you know, regrettably in the kind of business I'm in, I often get the phone calls all about the guys who screw up. Things that are going wrong. <laughs> I get to do the postmortems on the plane crashes. And um, on the other hand, uh, yeah, people who build outstanding jobs. I mean, stuff that jumps to the head right away. Um, non, well, NGO, really, BC Cancer Associ- uh, Cancer Association, BCCA. Yeah, yeah. Um, that agency has done an outstanding job of building a very, very, uh, very smooth running, uh, well organized operation. By the way, with an outstanding international reputation, and um, it took them a long time to build it. Uh, and they fight all the time to mean, mean, make, make sure they maintain that as well. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, very often we complain about all kinds of issues about, you know, long lineups, lack of treatment, et cetera. You end up getting caught with the, get into the BCCA network. These guys take care of things and they do business in a hurry. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's not always just corporations who are doing good jobs of these. You can find government crown corps and some, and some NGOs who do outstanding jobs of this stuff as well. Mm-hmm. I would say that the majority of our local government or crown corporations maybe don't do a good show. <laughs> I don't know if I'm sticking my neck out here. I haven't here. heard from ICBC. ICBC. In a while. Yeah, what did you just lottery corp? Hand, hand me a <laughs> hand me a brick and see if I can throw it through a front window. Yeah, yeah. Few targets oh, yeah. here. I mean, where do you want to start with? I mean, hydro is a classic example of how you don't do it. Uh, uh, BC ferries, um, ICBC. All well, fast. they've all had, you know, smart meters and the fast ferries and ICBC's recent sort of yeah. mess or dumpster fires, they've called it. Like, yeah. So you're saying that this is obviously something that um, governments need to pay attention to as well. Yeah. Because- and it, no, in fairness, Patrick, good point too. In fairness, look, can we blame it all on these particular crown corps? Hey, politicians had their hand in it as well. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And the new veracity... Uh, <laughs> We're talking about the issue of marketing here again. The new veracity data just came out. As usual, politicians are down by, with uh, used car salesmen uh, trusted by less than 20% of the population. Hmm. 
Um, so yeah, that, that kind of gives you a bad one. <laughs> so where, where does that leave the state of our crown corporations here? Cause they're battling some major, major issues. Yeah. Does it call into question the viability of that model? Like, are we at that point? Well, I mean, one of the things you, when, whenever you're, I think now we're back to macroeconomics, kind of the other side of where I work. Um, when you start dealing with those kind of cor- those crown corp structures, you got two choices. One is you can say, look, it's a crown corporation, make it function. So BC ferries. So BC Ferries did the most logical thing. As soon as you, as a politician, you say, um, okay, uh, become um, basically um, profitable. Easy. Let's cut off one of our routes. It's the one from uh, that basically runs from Bellacoola over to Port Hardy. Hey, guess what? In the process, they macroeconomically destroyed all of the tourist business between Williams Lake and Bellacoola. <laughs> So there's an unintended macroeconomic consequence of saying to a Crown Corp, you go ahead and maximize your bottom line as a ferry. Okay, we will. Let's get rid of that, that sailing for openers. Hey, it was chuck full of Europeans who considered this is part of the, this is part of the big trip of BC. So there's the one example where, you know, once you get macroeconomic, you've got to make decisions as opposed to, is the Crown Corp going to represent macroeconomic policy or is it going to represent the Crown Corp? Uh, hydro, look at the, look at, again, we're talking about reference. Now we're back to the issue of behavioral economics mm-hmm. and marketing. It's called reference pricing. I got two choices. If I want to jack the price of your electrical premiums by 30%, don't do it over three years. What you have to do is you have to make those increments very, very gradual and smooth. A lot of times keep them in line with inflation for openers. But you don't jump at that high because the reference price, that's the price people are used to. Throws them to shock, sticker shock. When they see the new price that their electrical bill has just gone up to, they can't believe it. Mm-hmm. Well, there's the example of reference price pricing in operation. And uh, old neoclassical economics couldn't get their head around that thing. Yeah. Um, that's the example where behavioral economics comes in and rescues it. Well, gee, they stole it off the marketers. Well, we stole it off the psychologists. Um, and so it goes back. Um, so, you know, even our friends at ICBC, they're talking about a, Possibly four hundred dollar hit this year on on standard premiums. Well, again, those kinds of increases, based on the rate of increase of premiums over the last two or three years, again that reference price. Now we're talking temporal, the time base, the time base over the last three years and in increases is driving consumers wild again. Mm-hmm. I was just wondering, how does like with a crown corporation, because they're not actually supposed to use the bottom line. They're not supposed to be profitable. They're supposed to run with an operating budget and have a little bit of capital expenditures and all that type of stuff. So how does somebody like BC Ferries balance that where it's like they're not strictly a corporation that's just supposed to make money? Because if you travel around the world, you go to Ireland and you take the ferries between Ireland and the UK, there's... 10 different companies and you can go cheap, you can go expensive. It's a free market, but yep. BC Ferries has a monopoly. That's right. So it's, they're not really part of the capitalist system. So how do yeah. how would they navigate? How do they navigate that? That just seems incredibly. It's a really good point, Pat. Yeah. I think the short answer to that is very carefully. Um, look, the way we've modeled it, you've got a simple choice. You can let it be a crown corporation with crown independent crown corporation objectives, i.e. profit profitability. Mm-hmm. Or you can say, no, it's actually a macro, macroeconomic policy tool. It is part of the BC government's transportation highway system. And if that's the case, then you have to treat it and finance it in such a way as it's part of the BC highways system. And that means you're going to have to throw government money in there as well. Mm. Argument being, it's serving a lot of parts of British Columbia that would not be developed 
were it not for the BC Ferries access. So whether it be tourism, whether it be access to uh, industrial development, uh, without that kind of ferry access, you wouldn't have that kind of macroeconomic contribution from those sectors. So you get into that situation saying, okay, what's it going to be, boys and girls? Are we going to have a Crown Corp that's profit-driven, or are we going to have a Crown Corp that's serving the macroeconomic policy of the government? We have a couple minutes left. We've touched on so much. One thing I really wanted to get across to you and ask you, last year we had United Airlines, Nivea, Pepsi, Dove, <laughs> multi-billion dollar companies with multi-million dollar marketing budgets. Yeah. They got it really, really wrong. Why does that happen in 2017 and 2018? <laughs> Walk me through that. I like that that commercial with Kylie Jenner. I thought it, it touched me in the heart, you know, the way she had the Pepsi and gave it, it to the- I can't. I, like, I, I try and picture the number of people this had to go by, legal, marketing, yeah. test yeah. groups. How do you produce something that gets it so wrong? That's an interesting one. Um, yeah, it's, it's the marketing. The list of marketing errors is absolutely humongous. Yeah. Um, drives my students crazy. I always say, no, the answer is not 22.395. There are better answers in marketing and worse answers in marketing. One of the things you watch out for is watch out for your focus groups. Watch out for the groups you target market sample on, and you have to make sure they are really, truly representative of that larger market out there. Um, so that means sometimes you've got to test and test and retest. You've got to watch out who's giving you that feedback because, yes, can you find some, some segments who, when they look at that, have no problem with the particular presentation and say, yeah, I go for it. And yet, when you show it to the wider audience, it goes absolutely haywire. Are you, not to interrupt, are you a fan of focus groups? Because I've, I've sat in on them when I was working for the government, yeah. and I was just banging my head against the wall after a while. I was like, this, we cannot yeah. use this. This is yeah. the worst I information we've ever gotten. Like, and it would change with each group. There would be somebody yeah. in the group that would take over. That's right. Like on a jury, and then they would run the whole thing. A million and we'd ways just get, to do it wrong. Yeah. yeah. Way back on CBC, I, I think on CBC Marketplace, I remember I did an interview. I said, it's like my chainsaw at home. I consider my chainsaw the most useful tool I have. On the other hand, get clumsy with it. It'll take your leg off in about a second. <laughs> and focus groups are very much like that. Get clumsy, get stupid. Let it, your, your scenario is exactly right. Let it get carried away with a couple of ringleaders. Make it uh, the content of the focus group the wrong crowd of people. You got total misleading junk and your point's well taken. Um, so, you know, can marketers get this right every time? Not by a bloody long shot. Um, they make all kinds of massive errors. Mostly it's basically um, where the market research has just been totally inadequate, um, pulled in the wrong people, not wide enough, failed to identify who the real proper target market actually was. Mm. And remember, just because uh, in the process, I may decide I want to go after you, Haley, as my target market. I may say things that are of great interest to you and attractive to you. They may totally annoy the hell out of Patrick, but he's not my target market. That would never happen, Haley. You know, no. <laughs> so there's a case where I start to say, hey, you know, I'd like to have Patrick too, but you know what? It's Haley who counts. Yeah. And I want everybody like Very Haley yeah, with yeah. her money <laughs> and buying right, my yeah, yeah. particular kind of product. So you wind up making these choices sometimes. Yeah. And so when we go out in Canvas, do we find then a bunch of people who are offended on social network systems? Yeah. I remember one of the classic ones, I think, was Fortis. They showed an older couple, um, you know, in the 50s, 60s, lying in front of a fireplace starting to make out. Well, oh, when they yeah. did the focus groups on the older couples, they kind of thought, well, this is kind of cool. Mm. Well, the younger crowd were totally offended by it. 
So they saw their parents making yeah. out on, yeah, yeah. So the parents that, would make yeah. out in front of the fireplace? No, not in my house. <laughs> so you can get these kinds of things where you, you, you think you're after one target market in the process, you totally alienate another one. Yeah, it goes to your earlier point too. You said it, I think, right at the start, knowing your blind spots too. Absolutely. Knowing what you're going after, knowing what you're not trying to do and, and being honest about it. Absolutely. And uh, as I say, uh, whenever you whenever you took the salespeople and you put them in that room and started saying, here's what we do, here's what's good about our product. My other favorite trick was then I'd go to customers and I'd say, tell me about these guys. What do you think? Well, a lot of times the sales guys give you this big raw, raw thing about, isn't our brand great? Don't we do good stuff? I say, now here's the kind of stuff I got talking to your customers. You suck here, 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 and here. Dead silence. <laughs> what? Yeah, you heard me. You're terrible. Your customers think you're bloody awful. No wonder you can't sell to them because you guys have been busy cheering each other on, thinking you're perfect. Go talk to somebody who doesn't like you. So the old example is um, years back, I caught a colleague and they did some interviews and they said, basically, it amounted to this. Um, We went out and we interviewed a whole bunch of the Ford buyers and we found out our product looks pretty good. I said, yeah, you interviewed all the Ford buyers. Why didn't you interview the GM buyers, the guys who don't like your product? Yeah. <laughs> then you might have learned something. All you did was you reinforced your own blind spot. It seems so simple, though, that corporations would miss something like that. Yeah, like- but remember, you got to remember, good point, Patrick. Remember the corporate culture, though. The corporate culture in, in North America, at least, is toxic as hell because it says something stupid. If you admit that your own product has weaknesses, that your own division is not doing as well as you would hope or you might, and that there's room for improvement, I guess you're setting yourself up to be fired because you're inadequate. Because the corporate structure says, well, you buffoon, yeah, you've admitted you know, you're no good in the following areas. It's your fault. Yeah. Well, as soon as the CEO gets it through his head or her head saying, you know, thanks for coming clean and being honest about this. You know, here's a reward for you for, for dealing with this. Let's get on and let's fix this stuff. Then you're going to see a change in the corporate zeitgeist, the mentality, the way it gets handled. But as long as you threaten somebody with the knife because it looks like they're, quote, inadequate. Mm-hmm. Uh, incapable, you know what? You're going to get cover up. You're always going to get the big smile. Yeah, yeah, boss, everything's going great. No, it's not. They're just going to try to keep their job. They're not really going to work and worry about the corporation or the bottom line. They're going to try to keep their paycheck. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. That's why I'm going to tell you the story you want to hear, man. Yeah. But I'm never going to come to you and say, Patrick, gee, I need some help here because we're getting slaughtered by the guy down the street on the following 10 ways. That's we, when they outsource to you and to, yeah. they have to go outside to get the, the right <laughs> answer. You got it. That's exactly how it works. I don't know. We could spend like a whole other hour I, yeah, I could, corporate culture. I could, I could go for an hour or two on this. <laughs> yeah, on, that's the um, subject all by itself. Get me going. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We'll have to have you back, Lindsay. But for now, thanks so much for joining us. It's been a great conversation. It was a pleasure. That's Lindsay Meredith. He's a professor of marketing at Simon Fraser University. This is it for our podcast today. This podcast was brought to you by Manning Elliott Accountants and Business Advisors. Patrick, thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having me. And if anyone wants to listen to more business news, past podcasts, you can check us out over at BIV.com. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back tomorrow.